How many of you believe in the resurrection? Yeah, praise God. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand for this next question, but um, I'll bet it would be just as unanimous. I wonder how many of us know somebody that doesn't believe in any resurrection. You see, my friends, that really divides all of humanity into two very different groups. In fact, it divides for all eternity. It's always been that way. It was the same 2,000 years ago. And this morning, we're going to see that that is indeed the, the case. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to open them to the book of Acts chapter number 23, Acts 23. We've been following Paul throughout this book of Acts. We've been tracing him. Uh, we, we started out in Acts chapter 1 a long time ago, and uh, we're nearing the end now of that book. But a few Sundays ago, we saw Paul arrive back in Jerusalem. He had just finished up his third missionary journey. He gave a report to James and the other early church leaders there. And in an attempt to bring unity between Jewish and Gentile Christians, Paul goes up to the temple to satisfy some Jewish regulations. He gets arrested while he's there. He gets falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into an area that only Jews were allowed to be in. Now, the mob just about tore him apart. But the Romans, actually, of all people, come to his rescue. And as he's being carried away, he asks for the privilege to be able to speak to the Jews. He does that on the steps there of the Antonia Fortress. And uh, and he gets to one point where he mentioned the Gentiles and things go crazy again. So they take him inside the, the barracks. They take him in towards the prison. And as he was about to be flogged, he mentioned his Roman citizenship. That spared him great pain. The Roman commander Claudius Lysias then attempts to discover just what crime causes him to be in so much trouble. And then he comes up with what he thinks is an ingenious plan to figure that out. He will have the 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 supreme court of the Jews, the Sanhedrin, examine him and determine what those charges are. To find out what happens, if you're able, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of the Word of God this morning. We're going to begin in Acts chapter 23 and verse number 1. Hear the Word of the Lord. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God and in all good conscience to this day. At this point, uh, at this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, you dare to insult God's high priest? Paul replied, brothers, I did not realize he was the high priest, for it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees, the other Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Keep your Bibles open this morning. We'll be back to this. God, I invite your presence today. I invite your Holy Spirit to help me to be able to speak it in a way that's clear. Father, in a way that is true and faithful to your word. And Father, I pray that you would help us each to hear it, to receive it, and to act on it. 
We ask it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. You may be seated this morning. And so Paul begins a series of five different trials. Just as the Lord Jesus Christ had five different trials, so does the Apostle Paul. Paul has one before the crowd that he's already had. He has one before the Sanhedrin, which he's involved in right now in today's reading. And then he has three before Roman rulers. The parallels between Jesus and the Apostle Paul in this regard are very striking. Both of them were accused by false witnesses. Just as Jesus was found innocent three times by a court of law, so too was the Apostle Paul. And just as Jesus was consistently condemned, so too was this faithful apostle. Now, Paul did have an advantage that Jesus did not have, Roman citizenship. That spared him a great deal of pain, as we saw last week. It spared him instant death, which, of course, Jesus did suffer. So Paul appears before the Jewish Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the supreme court of the Jews made up of 71 Jewish leaders. You talk about court packing, 71. This group was very powerful. They were second only to the Romans. It was made up of two major groups, Republicans and Democrats. No, <laughs> but it was, it was just that bad. It was just that bad. Um, in this case, it was the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they hated each other every bit as much, if not more, than those two parties do in D.C. today. The Sadducees, they were the elite. They were the upper crust. They were the wealthy priest. While the Pharisees were more of the people's party. The Pharisees actually developed a lot of the different rituals that the Sadducees had to carry out, much to their disdain. The Pharisees were widely respected. A lot of the people revered them, while the Sadducees were not very well liked. You begin to get the picture of these two very different groups. Josephus says that the two different parties actually started throwing rocks at each other during one of the meetings of the Sanhedrin. I'll bet they put in stone detectors before their next meeting. So the high priest, he was the chair of this board. He attempted to ride herd on the group, although he was still a very biased Sadducee. The high priest at this particular time was a man by the name of Ananias, not to be confused with Annas, who was the high priest when Jesus was tried, or the other Ananias that gave Saul back his vision to become Paul up in Damascus. It was his other brother, Daryl, right? This Ananias was quite a piece of work. Various writers call him corrupt and so greedy that he actually stole the tithes that belonged to other priests. Can you imagine that? The archaeology study Bible says he was cruel and violent. Josephus, the historian, tells us he was quick-tempered. Yes, this man is the high priest. The, the most uh, important and influential religious leader in the entire Jewish nation. 
Many Jews hated him so much. During the Jewish revolt that broke out against the Romans about 10 years after today's message, it was in 66 AD, Ananias, the high priest, actually hid in Herod's palace. They found him and he was assassinated by his own people. This man was quite a, quite a guy. So Paul begins his defense before this group by stating his good conscience before God and men, at which point he is immediately slapped on order of Ananias, the high priest. Everybody say, ouch. Gives you a little bit of an idea where this trial is going, does it not? Why did they slap him? We don't know exactly. Maybe it was because of his boldness. The scripture says he looked straight at them without fear, without intimidation, without submission. They weren't used to that. Most likely it was because Paul claimed to be innocent even though he followed Jesus whom this same group had rejected nearly 20 years earlier. Ananias could have considered that blasphemy. By the way, I would remind you that they slapped someone else, did they not? Jesus, during his trial. Unlike Jesus, however, Paul didn't take it silently. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. And now you can hear a pin drop. In that group of 70 some individuals. Number one. Paul dared talk back. Number two. He didn't say very nice things about the high priest did he? The reason people whitewashed walls then and now. Is to cover up some obvious defect. This stung particularly hard. Because Ananias knew it was true. The truth hurt. Number three. Paul pointed directly to their violation of the Jewish law that they claimed to love so much. So when they rebuked Paul for speaking like this to the high priest, he says he didn't know it was the high priest. Really? Now that's hard to understand. It's like saying in D.C. today, well, I didn't realize that was Joe Biden. I mean, it was... Really about that uh, equivalent. Everybody in Jerusalem knew the high priest. How could Paul not know? A couple of possibilities. Paul hadn't been in Jerusalem much lately. He might not have known what the current high priest looked like or sounded like. This position was appointed by the Romans and sometimes it changed more frequently than the weather. In addition, the room was pretty large. There were probably a lot of chatter going on. Paul may not have been able to tell exactly who said what. But the more likely reason, I believe, is because Paul couldn't see very well. There's evidence from his writing that his eyesight wasn't the best. So he might not have been able to make out that hazy figure across the room. That would be me without my glasses, okay? I'm so thankful that we have them today. Anybody else say amen? (laughs) In addition, this was not a regularly scheduled meeting of the Sanhedrin. Ananias might not have been in his usual high priestly outfit. 
He had on his everyday clothes. (laughs) A long white robe probably. Seen with poor eyesight. Across a pretty large distance. But instead of justifying himself. Like I probably would have done. Paul uses the same thing he just quoted to condemn and to judge the high priest to judge himself. Everybody say the scripture. Just as it was against God's law for them to slap him without a trial. So too, Paul says, it was against God's law for him to speak evil of one of God's rulers. Even if that individual was very bad. And it still is, by the way. Let's be careful what we say about our president and our governor. We can disagree with them and their actions and their beliefs. But let's be careful about not attacking them as individuals. I say that as much for my benefit as for yours. I want us to recognize today that Paul not only used the scripture to address the shortcomings of other people. He also used it to address his own. Far too often, I'm afraid, we only want to use the scripture to judge somebody else. We fail to let it judge ourselves. Paul realized something my daddy told me a long time ago. (laughs) It's a poor ruler that doesn't measure both ways. And so Paul not only measured the high priest with the law... He also measured himself with that same law. But his next move is genius. He knew that his chance for a fair trial before this bunch was about as great as that of a tax cut in Richmond right now. Having already been slapped before he even gets out of the gate, He now plays the resurrection card. Everybody say resurrection. Paul was a Pharisee. He knew what divided Pharisees and Sadducees. Number one, angels and spirits. The Sadducees said neither of those existed. The Pharisees said they both did. Number two, the resurrection. Sadducees said there was no such thing. Pharisees said yes it was. And that was the dynamite, the stick of dynamite that Paul lit in the room that day. Since Christianity rests completely and solidly on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul claims not only his own background as a Pharisee, but runs up the flag of bodily resurrection. Like dropping a cricket into a henpen. Those guys went nuts. Look back at your scripture now in verse number 7. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided. The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. There was a great uproar and some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? Now, I'm sure Paul knew that would happen as he sat there grinning. (laughs) 
divide and conquer. That's what he did. He even had Pharisees defending him that I'll bet just moments before would have voted for his death. Verse number 10. This dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. Now, in the Sanhedrin, okay, these religious men, he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. Old Paul leaves quite awake, does he not? Riot in Ephesus. Riot in the temple, and now there's a riot in the Sanhedrin. You go, Paul. So he ends up back in the barracks. Listen to what happens there. Verse 11. Following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also about me in Rome. How awesome that had to be. To personally receive this vision of encouragement from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Before this, Paul didn't know if he was going to be drug out tomorrow and flogged. Whether he would be stoned or crucified or whatever else. But now he knew that none of those things were going to happen. At least not until he got to Rome. Which is where he wanted to go anyway. I'm sure this particular prophecy carried Paul through many a night in prison, many a day before judges, and many a time of discouragement. Take courage. Verse number 12. The next, it ain't over. The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have taken a solemn oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petition the commander to bring him before you on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case. We are ready to kill him before he gets there. So if you can't convict him in court... Knock him off out of court, right? That was the plot. Forty men took place, uh, uh, took part in this plot. Probably zealots, which was yet another group of Jews. They banded together to kill Paul, and they were probably prompted and funded by both the high priest and the Sadducees. Get him into a narrow alley where a very few of the guards would be, and we'll take him out. So they swear an oath not to eat until it was done. I often wondered if they died of starvation because they didn't get to do this. Uh, no, actually not because the Jews would often let you out of a vow for very, very minor issue, especially if they liked you. And they liked these guys. So how does God get Paul out of this one? Keep reading, verse 16. But when the son of Paul's sister heard about this plot... He went into the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the commander. He's got something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. 
And so he does. God was going to keep the promise that Jesus made to Paul the night before. Jewish terrorist notwithstanding. It just so happened that Paul's nephew heard about this plot. I don't think it was just so happened, do you? Paul came from a family of Pharisees. It's possible that Sis overheard something. Warren Wearsby says, wives do chat with each other. (laughs) So do husbands, by the way. Notice, too, that Paul doesn't just trust God. Well, God said he'd take care of me, so I'll just sit here. He did trust God. But he also used some common sense. He took some action. Just because we have faith doesn't mean God doesn't expect us to use our brains. God gave us those for a reason. He gave us common sense. Let's use it. So, Lysias now realizes he's got to get Paul out of Jerusalem and fast. If a Roman citizen dies on his watch, he's in big trouble. So, verse 22, the commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. Then he called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. Provide mounts for Paul so that he may be taken safely to Governor Felix. (laughs) Old Lysias had seen enough by now to know to take any threat seriously. And so he does. The plot and Lysias' response to that plot speak about the instability of Jerusalem at that time in spite of Roman occupation. He wastes no time in smuggling Paul out of the city. He assigns no less than 470 soldiers to keep him safe. One man needs 470 soldiers. That's about half of all the Roman troops assigned to Jerusalem at the time. The size of that group indicates how much danger Paul was in. Lysias, he wasn't about to take any chance. He was determined to keep Paul safe. There's a verse in the Old Testament, Job chapter 5, verse 12. I love this verse. It says, God thwarts the plans of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. Amen? God was thwarting those plans of those evil men that were determined to get rid of Paul. He still does that today, my friends. So we're going to catch up with Paul again next week. All right, we'll entrust him to those 470 to take good care of him until we get back. But what are the lessons for us today? It's a historical account. But we also learn that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So what are the lessons? First of all, there is a lesson from Ananias, of all people, the high priest. He didn't act much like a high priest, did he? Some commentators even believe that Paul was being sarcastic when he said, I didn't recognize you. Because his actions were so inconsistent with his office. 
I don't buy that. I don't think that's Paul's character. I don't think that's his normal way of response. Especially when he responded with confession and humility after being corrected. But Ananias did ignore the very law that he was supposed to not only teach, but live out. Made me wonder about you and me. Do we look and act like the Jesus we say we represent? Would others have reason to look at us and call us whitewashed walls? Do we have a thin coat of Christian paint over top of a heart of wickedness and evil? If so, let's repent of that before it's too late. None of us are perfect, obviously, but that is our goal. Uh, He says, be perfect even as I am perfect, the scripture commands us. Second lesson, let's also notice God's encouragement to Paul in the middle of a great trial. In a crowd this size, I would bet money that some of you are going through a tough spot right now. I don't know what it is, but I would bet money that's the case. You're not in jail, but sometimes you feel that way. The circumstances of life have you locked in. You're not sure what tomorrow is going to bring. Much less next week. Hear God coming alongside you today. Hear Him encouraging you not to give up. To be strong. Nothing will prevent God from accomplishing His plans through you. Nothing. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, the Scripture says. Stay faithful, my friend. Use your common sense. Stay true and stay obedient. And finally today, let's end where we began. Let's realize how important resurrection is. We will celebrate Resurrection Day in three short weeks. But in truth, we celebrate it every Sunday we meet for worship. That's why we meet on Sunday, because it's the day Jesus rose from the dead. Amen? Resurrection was and still is the crucial issue. It divided the Sanhedrin back then. It still divides all people today. If there is life after death, and if Jesus did in fact rise from the dead, it totally affects everything else in our lives. The Sadducees, the old joke is, they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. They had no hope beyond this life. Can you imagine if this life is the only thing you have to look forward to? That was them. They missed out, even more importantly, on Jesus. They missed out on that personal relationship. They missed out on an eternity in heaven because they refused to listen And to check out the resurrection for themselves. Don't make the same mistake. My friends, Jesus rose from the dead. Each of us will also to everlasting glory or everlasting pain. 
Check it out. Don't take my word for it. Test it. And then place your eternal hope in the one who is the first fruits of those who rise from the dead. The Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friend, if you've been denying the truth of your own resurrection. Do it no longer. And receive the good news of Jesus today. Do that while we pray together. Let's pray. Father. I thank you this morning that even in the midst of this historical account, there are numerous lessons that we can learn. God, I I thank you for the truth of the resurrection, that it's not just a story. It's not just a fable. Father, it it is the hope of eternity, the certain hope. God, we rejoice and we praise you today. We ask today that you would forgive us for those times when we have been and are whitewashed walls. When we fail to live out the truth of the message of Jesus Christ. When we say one thing and then do something very different. God, forgive us. Have mercy. Cleanse us in Jesus' blood. And Lord, I do pray today for that one or many that are here facing a time of discouragement. A time of challenge, a time of question. God, speak into their heart this morning. Speak into their soul. May they hear you loud and clear saying, take courage. I'm with you. I'm with you. Stay strong. Father, I do pray that anyone that has not received the message of Jesus would do that right now as we pray. As we continue to pray, friend, if you're here and you've never received Jesus as your Savior, don't leave here until you do. Agree with God that you've sinned and done wrong. Ask Him to forgive you through the blood that Jesus shed on your behalf to save your soul. Tell Him you believe that Jesus not only lived and died, but that He did rise again. He'll save you today. God, we rejoice and we thank you. We praise you. Help us to be the people you've called us to be. We ask in Jesus' name and everyone said.